0: let's deal with the text. Okay. Isaiah 35 is all about Jesus. It is a messianic prophecy. A messianic prophecy is a prophecy in great detail in the Old Testament depicting what will happen when the Messiah comes. Isaiah wrote several of them. Isaiah 35 is one of the most clear and beautiful Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, it's true for you Bible students, if you've been to Bible college, it is true that in the short-term scope of the prophecy, Isaiah is writing about the return of the captives from Babylon. Israel at the time was in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. And he prophesied that God was going to bring a highway into the desert And that the Jews would walk the highway to return to their homeland... But in the long-range view and long-range scope of the prophecy, it is actually messianic because in one of the verses he says, I'm going to save you there. And when you have a prophecy about salvation and the coming salvation or the coming Savior, it immediately qualifies as messianic, as does many of the specific verses where he prophesies what will happen when Jesus comes. Now, messianic prophecy in the Old Testament served three purposes. Number one, confirmation. So the people would know it when they see it. God sowed prophecy after prophecy, after prophecy, telling them, when you see these things come to pass, you'll know what I was talking about. You'll know what I was promising is now here in manifestation. And you'll know it when you see it. Number two, hope. God gave prophecy in the Old Testament for the purpose of hope. In fact, that's still one of the major frequencies that prophecy today runs across, whether it's prophecy about coming events or whether it's a personal prophetic word. God gives prophecy in order to give you hope. In other words, you're going to have to wait on this thing. It's not going to happen now, but I want you to hope while you're waiting. And then number three, God gives prophecy to prove his sovereignty over time. In other words, God is telling them something now in great detail about something that's going to happen in the future, proving that God is not constricted by time. God exists outside of time. So he's telling them, I'm sovereign over your days. I'm sovereign over your weeks, your months, and your years. I'm sovereign over your life. And I'm telling you something now, the way it's going to happen then, because I've already been there and I'm still standing talking to you, describing it to you. I'm sovereign over time. Now, God's sovereignty over time encourages us because it lets us know God's not, he's not limited by time so if god is making you wait you're waiting for a reason that's a word for somebody this morning right here if god's making you wait god exists outside of time time is no limitation for god if god is making you wait it's not that he can't do it now if god is making you wait he's making you wait for a reason look at somebody smile at him encourage him say you're waiting for a reason And so the Old Testament writers wrote messianic prophecies and all of the Old Testament, I want you to catch this, all the Old Testament is waiting on the coming of the Messiah, waiting on the coming of Jesus. Then we have his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, resurrection in the gospels. Then we get into the book of Acts and the epistles and now the New Testament church is also waiting but we're waiting on him to come back. Old Testament waited for his arrival, and now the New Testament church waits for him to come back. And so he gives prophecy for both. We have prophecies in the New Testament about what the end of the world will look like, what the end of days will look like before Jesus comes back. But Isaiah 35 itself anticipates his first coming and in verse five and six he says you'll know it you'll know he's here because then the eyes of the blind shall be opened you remember when Jesus stepped on the scene the miracle that he perpetuated more than any other was he started opening up blinded eyes the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped you remember when Jesus went up to that deaf man and put his finger Jesus put his finger in his mouth and then stuck His finger into the ear of the deaf man and his ears were unstopped. You remember when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and there was a man who had laid there for 38 years who was lame. And Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man started leaping. All of that is Isaiah 35 coming to pass. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing And you would think that the people of Israel who had read Isaiah 35 for centuries would have been saying, oh my God, this is it. And then look at verse eight. He says, a highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. I want to think about and set our minds for a few moments on what is the highway of holiness? I'm going to tell you what, this scripture really messed me up growing up, uh, growing up in church. I know some of you did, some of you may not have, and it just kind of depends on the level of how strict it was or what the denomination was. But, but in, in our denomination, when I was growing up, holiness was the thing you couldn't do nothing (laughs) because it wasn't holy. You're going to think I'm lying. One of the elders came to me when I was a little boy, and I was, I was chewing bubble gum, got me some bubblelicious, and there wasn't nothing like bubblelicious. You couldn't make any other gum pop like the bubblelicious would pop. And I had me some bubblelicious, and I was sitting on the pew, and an elder came up to me and told me I needed to go to the altar and repent for chewing bubblelicious. going to hell. You know? All of the ladies that came to the church looked like they fell off covered wagons, dresses down to their toes, dragging on the floor, no makeup, hair done in a bun or hanging down past their knees, just all looked crazy. It was, and it was all in an effort to be holy because the scripture says, be ye holy as I am holy. And they told us you got to be as holy as God. You got to be as righteous as God. Got to be as clean as God. Got to be as pure as God. Didn't have TVs in our houses. It's a sin to watch TV. I remember my grandpa, we'd go on vacation. My grandpa, when he got in the hotel room, would take his jacket off, put a little bit of olive anointing oil on it, and put his jacket over the TV. They would not even going to turn it on, but he wanted to put it over it in case any spirits jumped through. He'd have that anointed jacket. See, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. You think I'm crazy. It was about holiness. Right? You got to be holy. Holiness is right. And I heard this message preached when I was little. There's a highway of holiness. Highway of holiness. And the unclean cannot walk there. This highway is for others. And... When I initially read that, um, I felt like it wasn't for me, you know, because if you're honest with yourself, scripture says it's a highway of holiness and the unclean cannot walk there. If you're honest with yourself, we all got some areas of our lives that are unclean. And nobody told us back in the old church, but they had some areas of their lives that were unclean too. They just didn't let you see it on Sunday, you know. But uh, I'm not ready for my slides yet. Y'all hold on, you're getting ahead of me. I'm going to take my time this morning. So it's a highway of holiness, and the unclean can't walk there. And I, I, I really struggled with that. I've got to be honest with you, I really struggled with that. Because it's condemnation is, is, what, is what I felt like. I, I felt like that was a verse in the Bible that was announcing to me that this isn't for people like you. You ever read a scripture and you thought that this isn't for people like, like me, you know, there's a few scriptures in the Bible that still do that to me. Like when Jesus said, if someone slaps, you turn the other cheek, I'm still, I'm still wrestling with that scripture. <laughs> you know, I still look at that scripture and I say, this scripture isn't for me, you know, but I used to read that and, and, and I was reading it wrong. The, The scripture says it's a highway of holiness. And if we ask the question, what is the highway of holiness? Point number one, it's a place of grace. You can put the first slide up now. It's a place of grace. Now, I'm sure when I read there's a highway of holiness that no unclean person can walk on. I'm sure your first thought wasn't the grace of God. You may have been reading that the way I read that. But anytime, I want to give you this, I want to give this to you. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you come across a scripture and you feel condemnation, like, ooh, that's, man, that's for somebody else. That, that could never be me. Anytime, you got to understand, the enemy watches you read your Bible too. And he will come with condemnation to steal the word and its meaning from you. The scripture says in John 3, 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. God is not in the business of condemnation. So the reason I was reading it wrong, I was reading it's a highway for holy people. Yeah. And if you're unclean, you can't walk on it. And, and what, what, I, what I had wrong in there was that the highway is not for the holy. The highway itself is holy. Because, remember, this is all about Jesus... It's not just a road, it's a way. Yeah. Okay? Everybody say it's not just a road. It's, just a road. It's, a it's a way. Now, if we understand that the highway of holiness is a way, now we can link this messianic chapter to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at John 14, 4 through 6. John 14, 4 through. Through six. John 14. Four through six. All right, I'll just read it. Give me a second. All right. Jesus says, and whither I go or where I'm going, and the way, go back to 13. To, uh, Yeah, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know, read that with me and where I go, you know, and the way, you know, all right, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going away, I'm leaving you, but where I'm going, you know, and the way, you know, next, next verse, and Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am. Do you see how it connects to the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 35? He said, There's a high way right, of holiness. So it's not that you've got to be holy and live holy and do holy to get on the highway. No. The highway itself is holy because Jesus himself is the way said, I am the way I'm the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So therefore, because Jesus is the highway, the highway of holiness is a place of grace. Now, what about the part that said nobody that's unclean can step on this highway? Well, I want to ask you a question. You know how the Holy Spirit was initially poured out on the 120 believers in the upper room, and they were all Jews? Okay, so the Holy Spirit fell first on the Jews. Anybody know who the first Gentile, when I say Gentile, Gentile, didn't have any natural descendant to Abraham, did not have a previous covenant with God that was established, somebody that was just morally reprehensible, had no teaching, no training, just completely out of it. Who was the first Gentile that got filled with the Holy Spirit? Anybody know? Anybody? Cornelius. Okay. So Cornelius is noticing this Holy Ghost explosion that's going through Jerusalem. And he seeks out Peter to ask him, hey, can I get in on this? Can I be saved? Can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And so he sends people to go to the house where Peter's staying to inquire about how to get this precious gift of the Holy Ghost. And Peter is up on the roof and he's asleep. And while he's asleep, he has a dream. There is a sheet floating down out of heaven by four corners. And all full of the, all inside the sheet is all types of unclean animals or animals that the law of Moses had deemed unclean. In other words, Jewish people, as a part of their religious faith base, did not touch these animals. It uh, had pigs, lobsters, shrimp, you know, all the stuff I like. It was all <laughs> in this sheet, but the law said it was ceremonially unclean, and if you, if you ate it, you would defile yourself in the presence of God. So, Peter sees all these unclean animals, and he hears this voice shout to him from heaven, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And so that's where we pick up the story. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Look at what Peter says when he hears a voice. He said, rise, kill, and eat. But Peter said, no, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Just, Just think about that word, unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time and says, What God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. Then in Acts 10, 28, Peter is explaining this dream that he had. And he said to the people he was explaining to, he says, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go with a person of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter preaches to Cornelius and his whole house gets saved and they get filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of the people that were a part of the Jewish church got upset with Peter. They said, why are you sharing our holy faith, our holy things with these unclean Gentiles? Peter said, God told me not to call anybody unclean. Peter, do you know how these people have been living? They, they go to public bathhouses. They're involved in all these orgies. They're morally reprehensible. And, and Peter said, I don't know what to tell you. God saved them and filled them with the same Holy Ghost that he filled us with. And so listen, it stirred a huge controversy so they had to have a council at Jerusalem with all of the apostles of the church and they gathered and they wanted to confront Peter about this in Acts 15, 8 and 9. Look at what Peter says in Acts 15, 8 and 9. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those Gentiles. God acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Meaning, this middle wall of division and partition that was keeping some people in and some people out, God knocked it down by saving anybody... Who had faith in Jesus Christ and not just saving them, but filling them with His Holy Spirit. So, regardless of how unclean you have been, listen, regardless of what your past is, regardless of how unclean you have been, all right? It's not that you, it's not what they told me when I was little at all the conferences we used to go to and all this. It's not that you have to get clean and then start walking the highway of holiness. No, 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 no. You get clean the moment you step on the highway of holiness. And you continue to be cleansed the longer you stay on it. So if you're a Christian with some issues in your life this morning making you feel unclean, let me give you a word. Just keep walking on the highway of holiness. Stay connected to Jesus. And if you keep walking, he will keep cleansing you. So that's what it means, a highway of holiness that no unclean person can walk. Why can't an unclean person walk on it? Because the more you walk on it, the cleaner you get. All right. So it is a place of grace. Faith in Jesus Christ qualifies you to walk the highway of holiness. I want you to say this with me. By grace, through faith. I have been cleansed. Now, I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what kind of guilty past you have on you. I don't care what the enemy's trying to beat you over the head with condemnation over. By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. In Jesus, I'm cleansed. Now, I want you to tell your neighbor something. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell him, by grace, through faith, you have been cleansed. I want you to find the biggest sinner on your road. No, 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 listen. No, listen. No, listen. A couple of people got it right. They raised their own hands. Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul said, I'm the greatest sinner in the church. I'm the greatest sinner there's ever been. And I want you to tell that sinner, by grace, through faith, you have been cleansed. All right. So what is the highway of holiness number two? The highway of holiness is a place of safety. Look at what verse 9 says in Isaiah 35. He said, no lion shall be there. The lion's not allowed to go on this road. The roaring lion, the lion that would seek to devour you, it's not allowed to go on this road. No predators, no ravenous beasts are allowed to go on this road. This is a road of safety. But be careful. Don't wander off the road. Right? Now, I'm not talking about saved, lost, saved, lost. You're on the road, you're saved. You're off the road, you're lost. I'm not, God, God's not schizophrenic. We're saved by grace. Okay? God knows the end from the beginning. But there are Christian people that start out walking in the safe place on the highway of holiness and, you know, you don't realize it, but the enemy's always showing you billboards of distractions while you're on the highway trying to get you to exit. Okay? Now, the highway is a place of safety, but the moment you exit, you're in the devil's territory. Now, you can be saved, you can be going to heaven, but encounter a lot of turmoil and pain and wreckage in your life that you didn't have to. Because you ran into a predator because you got off the road. You know? There are, you know, there, one of the things the enemy does to us all the times as Christians is he advertises unlawful relationships that we should get into, you know? Like a billboard when you're on the highway just telling you, exit now, exit now, you know? And you can be saved, full of the Holy Ghost, love God, and really just wreck your life by taking the wrong exit. Those of you that are married, you know, the enemy sends somebody in your circle and and you start spending time and it's inappropriate. You start flirting with somebody that's not your spouse. And what you don't realize is you're in the devil's territory and, and there's no safety there. There's no protection there. There's no covering there. You start setting evil before your eyes or you start doing things that the Holy Spirit has convicted you and you know you shouldn't do them. Well, now you done got off the highway, you took an exit and there's a lot of danger there. And the peril and the pitfalls and the difficulties Christians go through that they never had to is just mind-boggling. God has put you on a highway of safety that the enemy cannot walk on I'm telling you he can't touch you when you're on the highway but stay on the highway first Peter 5 8 says be sober be vigilant for your adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour now if he's seeking whom he may devour there's some he can and some he cannot those he cannot devour are those on the highway. Those he can are those good, sweet Christian people that know the word, and some of them even follow the Holy Ghost, but they, they take the exit and they get off the highway, and, and you just qualified yourself to become the lion's lunch that day. When you do that, stay on the highway. Number three, what is the highway of holiness? It's a place of joy. Look at Isaiah 35, 10. He said, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everybody say, with singing. With With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, it's one of the verses that helped me pick, you know, this text to preach because I've been seeing a lot of y'all sighing. <sighs> we got some professional sires up in this church. <sighs> you know, you got so good at, you express your full range of emotions just by one side. You know? And he said, walking on the highway of holiness... Just walking on it with singing will cause sorrow and sighing to flee from you. It's a place of joy. Now, we got our joy misplaced. I'm going to help you find it. What empowers the joy of the Christian? I want you to think about that. Don't think about it theologically. Think about you. What empowers the joy of the Christian? Now, it should be what should empower your joy, be the anchor of your joy, be the center of your joy. What should be the center of your joy is the fact that you're no longer unclean. That should be the main force of your joy. We're no longer unclean. Look at the word cleansing. Look at this word for a second. Look at this word cleansing. Put that word cleansing up there for me. All right. Look at clean sing. Look at it again. Clean sing. In other words, if he's made you clean, No matter what else is going on in your life, if he's made you clean, no matter if they repossessed your car or no matter if you're having a bad day or you're in a bad mood or no matter if somebody that you love walked away from you. At the end of the day, if you're still clean, then you always have, you always have the unction and the energy and the force to sing. God has been good to us. I mean on your worst day. God has still been mighty, 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 mighty good to us. So why are so many Christians depressed? Why are so many Christians wrestling with anxiety? Why are so many Christians Addicted to medications to try to keep them up? Why did even David ask, Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Why did David himself have to ask God to restore the joy of his salvation? If David lost the joy of his salvation, you can lose yours. And when you've lost the joy of your salvation, when you lost that being happy and full of joy just because you remember you're saved and you're clean, when you've lost that, then you're, the moment you lose that, your joy gets on a roller coaster. Sometimes you're up. You know? And usually the highs can be real high and the lows can be real low. When you... Put the anchor of your joy in anything other than your salvation, then what it does is it puts you in a position of perpetual longing and seeking and searching. When you take the anchor of your joy out of the fact that you've been cleansed and forgiven and saved and loved by God, when you take it out of that and you put it in, I'm gonna lose 25 pounds. Then, I'm going to have joy. I bought a dress three sizes smaller than I am right now, and the day I fit into it, I'm going to have joy. When I get the promotion I've applied for ten times, I'm going to have joy. When we pay off the house or we pay off the car then I'm going to have joy. When the kids get out of this crazy season they're in right now, and my house is not a tornado war zone every day, then I'm going to have joy. And you just start putting your joy in all these other things. And what it does, it keeps you longing. Longing. Searching, you know. Searching for, where's the joy? And... For many of us, we're searching, longing, and seeking when we should be rejoicing. Now, Luke 15 contains three parables of longing, seeking, and searching. Okay? Very familiar. You've been in church any amount of time. You've heard about them. You know it. Luke 15 contains three parables of longing, seeking, and searching. The first one is you got a shepherd that had a 100 sheep, and he lost one, and he went searching for it. Then you got a woman who had a set of 10 coins. She lost one, and so she started seeking and searching feverishly for what she lost. Then you got a man that had two sons, and he lost one of them, and he was aching and and longing to see his son again. Now, I want to ask you a question. Put my question up on the screen. I want to ask you a question. What was the first thing each of these people did when they found what they lost? Huh? Well, let's look at it. Look at Luke 15, 6. Luke 15, 6. When he comes home, he calls... This is the shepherd who found his sheep. When he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Let's look at verse 9. This is the woman with the coins. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying... Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace that I lost. And now verse 23 and 24, let's look at the father. Verse 23 and 24. He said, bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us be merry. Next verse for this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found and they begin to be merry. So I want to ask you again, what's the first thing? I want you to think about this. What's the first thing each of these people did when they found what was lost? Huh? Some are saying call their friends, some are saying rejoice. But that's not the first thing they did. The first thing they did when they found what was lost is they stopped looking for it. Because you can't rejoice properly if you're still looking for what's lost. And part of the pandemic of lack of praise that we've been going through in the body of Christ is we have Christians walking around with their soul aching and searching and longing for something that you have already found. You want love. You found it. You want acceptance. You found it. You want forgiveness. You found it. You want purpose. You found you have found the thing. I need you to hear me with your spirit. You have found the thing. You are in possession of the thing. But because your anchor's not in that thing, you can have it and not really appreciate it. it's going to leave a lot of people out. So, you know, but there's, there's a lot of people in here and maybe, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've been married several years, but you know, there was a a time before marriage. Have you ever been with somebody and you were totally invested in them and they were just kind of, ah with you? You ain't got, you ain't got to talk back to me. I know it's personal. But, but they're taking you for granted. You can treat them better than anybody's ever treated them in their entire life, but it doesn't matter what you do for them. They don't appreciate it because their anchor is not in you. And so many of us have treated God like that with our emotions in our heart he 's done more for you than your mama ever did he 's done more for you than your daddy ever did he 's done more for you than your lover ever did he 's done more for you than your spouse ever did he 's done more for you than you 've done for yourself. And when you think about the reality of all that he's done, we should be walking around on cloud nine all the time because we've been saved. Our past has been forgiven. Our slate has been clean. But we don't feel that way. Not really. Not most of the time. Because the anchor of our joy is in something else so really god's not the problem once again you are don't you love coming to an encouraging church why am i so sad lord i wish you would just give me joy what else can he do you want him to come down and die on the cross again what else can he do? Can he pick you up out of the miry clay once again? What else can he do? We used to sing this song. Old church had a lot of flaws, but, but one of the things it did have is it let you know the center and source of your joy was in Jesus. It taught us that this world ain't your home anyway. So don't get too low over anything that happens in this world. You ain't going to be here that long. This life is but a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. We used to sing this song, Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. Some of y'all know that song. You're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. What can this world do to me? What can people do to me? What can you say to me to get me out of joy when the anchor of my joy is in? What is the highway of holiness? It's a place of joy. And I want to tell you, the joy is available, but you got to... You gotta put the anchor of your joy and the anchor of your expectation back where it belongs. Gotta put it back in Jesus. Gotta get it back in Jesus. In Him I live. In Him I move. In Him I have my being. In Jesus. If it's not in Jesus, it's gonna fluctuate. If it's not in Jesus, It's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. If it's not in Jesus, it's on sinking sand. Don't Don't put the anchor of your joy in a relationship because if the enemy knows the anchor of your joy is in a relationship, all he has to do is attack the relationship and there goes your joy. Ah, If the anchor of your joy is in a house, all he has to do is attack the house and there goes your joy. But if the anchor of your joy is in Jesus, that my soul's been saved by a Savior that loved me and thought I was so valuable, he went to Calvary's cross and shed his own blood just to make a sick, twisted individual like me, totally clean, totally acceptable, totally forgiven, then, then you walk around with something on the inside that the enemy can't touch. So that's why Paul said, even when it comes to grieving and mourning the loss of a loved one, Paul said, we do not mourn and sorrow like those who have no hope because there's nothing you can take away from me that takes away all of my hope. You can take away my job and take away my hope for a paycheck. You can take away my car and take away my hope for the freedom of going and getting in my car and going for a ride. But no matter what you deplete me of on the inside, you can never take away what Jesus. So Paul says in Romans 4, this hope becomes the anger of the soul. So I'm immovable. I can't be shaken because of where I've thrown my anchor. So it's a place of joy and rejoicing. Now, almost done. I want to backtrack and go back to verse 6 and 7 and I want to look at this water. He says in Isaiah 35, 6, the Messiah comes Lame are going to leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness. So what is that? That's water in a dry place. Waters shall burst forth in the wilderness. Streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. And the thirsty land springs of water. Now we have four things here about water. We have waters in the wilderness, streams in a desert, pools in a parched ground, springs in a thirsty land. Remember, this is all about Jesus. What will happen when Jesus comes? So he says, one of the things you'll notice when the Messiah comes, Isaiah says, he will give water to the weary. Everybody say water, water. to the weary. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he came. Jesus brought us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is living water. Everybody say it again. The Holy Spirit is living water. Now, I want to tell you something crazy about Isaiah 35. When he wrote this, the first year he wrote this, the Jews got so impressed by the anointing and the substance on this word of prophecy concerning the Messiah That every year during the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would gather together and they would quote Isaiah 35 about God giving the water in the wilderness and pools and parched ground and all that. And what they would do is they would take a flagon of water, they would go to a dry spot on the ground during the feast, and they would pour out the water on the ground. And they would say, God, we are poured out like water, we're thirsty. Send us the water you prophesied you would send us in Isaiah 35. Now, they did this every year for hundreds of years until one day at the feast, Jesus himself was in attendance. All right? Look at John seven thirty-seven. Look at what Jesus said while they're doing this ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, pouring out the water. On the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Next verse. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Next verse. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, Jesus is looking at these people pour out water on the ground and say, God, we're thirsty, give us the water. And Jesus said, if you wanted water, come to me and drink. If you believe on me as the scripture has said, then out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. That's what Jesus did. Jesus brought the Holy Spirit. Point number four, what is the highway of holiness? What is the highway of holiness? It's a place by the riverside. Everybody say, a river runs through it. In other words, Jesus is the highway, and the Holy Spirit is the river, and they run side by side. You get Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. Okay? You get Jesus you get the Holy Spirit. This is true for every Christian. You get Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. You never have to be dry. So the question is, why are we so dry? Now, the Lord spoke to me when I was getting ready to preach this, and I knew it would be the case, but it's been confirmed. There's some dry people in this room. I watched somebody sit with their arms crossed like a bullfrog during all the praise and worship. And I just knew it. I said, there's some dry people in this room. You know? Why are we so dry? Just shriveling up, cracking dry. You've got a river in you. But you partnered with the devil and you built a dam. You're so dry because your river's dammed up. And you need to let the river. Look at James chapter 3 verse 7. says, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. In other words, there's not an animal you can find anywhere, no matter how powerful it is, that hasn't been tamed. You know, you've seen people tame crocodiles, crazy people, but they tame crocodiles. You see people train dolphins to do tricks. You know, you ever been to SeaWorld back when it was actually SeaWorld and they, they would have these, dolphins. And the, then these huge, massive killer whales, the killer whales, they would have killer whales, you know, do, they would do something with their hand. The killer whale would turn around and wave to you with his tail and splash you. Amazing stuff that these powerful beasts have been tamed by man. You got lions, lion trainers. Think of that lion trainers, getting a cage with a lion to train it. One guy it didn't work so well for him, but we won't go there. It messes up the analogy. But. All these powerful animals can be trained, right? But then he says, but no man can tame the tongue. (laughs) 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 Woo! It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God, our father. And with it, we curse men who've been made in the similitude of God. And then he he starts talking out of the same mouth. You got blessing and you got cursing. He said, the tongue is like the rudder on a ship. It's the smallest member on the ship. And yet it steers the whole direction of the ship. So does your tongue steer the direction of your life. Now, we get it twisted. We think that our thoughts and feelings inform our speech. No, it's reversed. Your speech informs your thoughts, and your feelings. You feel the way you feel because you've been talking the way you've been talking. Your tongue is the rudder. It's steering the direction of the ship of your life. Right? And you got a serious problem because there's no person alive that can tame the tongue. So, Jesus the highway with the riverside of his spirit flowing beside him, comes and wants to give people who believe in him a gift. Because no man can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit can. So he said, listen, he said, I'm going to be in you. Okay. Rivers of living water. But one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that he actually partners with your tongue to speak. Pastor, are you talking about speaking in tongues? Yes. Yes. I know in 2020 at a church like this, it's insane to bring up the concept of speaking in other tongues. But the lack of speaking in tongues is what's keeping you so powerless as a believer. The lack of speaking in tongues is the reason you don't have joy of your salvation. The lack of speaking in tongues is the reason you have no power and authority over the devil. The lack of speaking in tongues is why you're in the mess that you're in you have dammed up the river and you're not letting it flow because you worship at the altar of your intellect more than you worship at the altar of the word of God. Now the word of God said, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. It's known as glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Now, when it comes to speaking in tongues, there's two biblical applications often misunderstood. I've talked to people about speaking in tongues before, and they have said to me, Pastor, I just don't have the gift. You've misunderstood that a little bit theologically. There's two applications. There's the grace of speaking in tongues, which is available to every person who believes in Jesus. Okay? Okay. The grace of speaking in tongues is a personal prayer language. It's when you're praying and you decide to let the Holy Spirit speak out of you in an unknown tongue. It's a personal prayer language. Then, number two, Paul also talked about, and they get confused, you have the gift of tongues and interpretation. Okay? Now, that's only supposed to happen when there's no unbelievers present. And if someone gives a message out in tongues, there has to be interpretation in English. Some of you, if you grew up in Pentecostal wild circles, you've seen this before. A lot of times it's fake. A lot of times it's emotionalism. Uh, I'm going to say it again. A lot of times it's fake. You got to be careful with that because we have such a lack of real apostles and real leadership that don't like to confront people and set them in order. There's a lot of craziness that can go on with spiritual gifts. Uh, But I have seen it. You know, there was this, uh, we were at Katie's home church uh, in Kentucky, and there was this, they had this incredible choir uh, from Africa, all these young students, and they were touring the world. They had these kids on a tour of, they were going all over. They had been in Italy. They had been in England. They were in the States. And they happened to be there that Sunday, just, you know, the, the church had scheduled them to come. And Katie's pastor... Um uh, yeah, Katie's pastor was was praying and all of a sudden he erupted in a tongue, okay? And he didn't know it. But at the end of the service, the man who was taking care of the kids choir and had taken them all over the world came up to him and said, "Do you speak Swahili?" And Pastor Tom said, "No, I don't speak Swahili." He said, when you got up and gave that message in tongues, you were speaking fluent, perfect Swahili, and you answered a question I have been asking God for five years. So, so it, can be, it can be a way for God to use languages to give someone a very specific message. Okay, But, but that's the gift of tongues. you got to understand, in Jerusalem at the time, it was extremely multicultural. There were, there were people from every background culturally there in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given. And then you've got apostles that have to go and evangelize the world at a time where higher education was not prominent. And so God used the gift of tongues and interpretation to really do some marvelous things in the early church. And I'm not saying it was just for the early church, but it was one of the important gifts back then. And uh, still continues in some places legitimately today. But that's the gift of tongues. It's for the church, for the edification of the body, when there is tongues and interpretation. But the, the grace of speaking in tongues as a personal prayer language is available to every believer. And believe it or not, you do not have to have some weird spiritual experience first in order to speak in tongues. A lot of people say it like this. Um, I was saved for 10 years and then I got the Holy ghost. And what they mean is I was saved for 10 years and then I had a spiritual experience and I spoke in tongues. Um, that's not really correct. I understand what they're saying. Uh, I'm going to really go against the grain of some of my, uh, mentors by saying this, but that's not really correct. You read your Bible. You cannot get saved without the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the highway and the river, they're both together. You have to have both. You understand? So in the gospels, it says no one can even come to the father except he is drawn by the spirit. So The Holy Spirit is active in your life. Another place says you cannot even come to faith to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord without the assistance of the Holy Spirit within you. Okay, so you have the Holy Spirit if you have Jesus. Hallelujah. John said, one is coming after me. He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize, submerge you into the holy spirit and into fire. You have the holy spirit if you have Jesus. Okay? What what they're talking about is that they were saved and then 10 years later they it was the first time they exercised speaking in tongues. Uh but that that's available for you the moment you have true genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's available, okay? So no one has to lay hands on you, you know. No one has to do that. The, the preacher doesn't baptize you in the Spirit. The Bible says Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. Um, and let me dispel a couple of things. Go to First Corinthians fourteen fourteen. First Corinthians fourteen fourteen. Paul's explaining a lot about this, and I think it's important for some of you to know. First Corinthians fourteen fourteen. For if I pray in a tongue. Now what he's talking about here is personal prayer language. Why? Because he said, look at the context. If I pray. He's not talking about prophesying in church. He's not talking about public assembly. That would be the gift of tongues. This is prayer. If I, please put that back up. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Watch. Watch. But my understanding, my thinking is unfruitful. Now, one reason a lot of people get hung up on praying in tongues is because they, and I really want you to listen to me with this, they're good people, they're honest and earnest people, and they don't want to fake anything. And they know that fake stuff can't exist around the church. All right? So they believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus is real. They've asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins. They're following the word. They're following the road. They're they're with Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, they're open to praying in the Holy Spirit. They just don't want to think that it's them doing it, them manipulating it. They want to know that it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. And there's a mind block there, you know. And so they don't don't do it because they think it's, it's... It's a problem there in their understanding. But Paul said, when you pray in tongues, your understanding is unfruitful. It it completely fails you. In other words, you will not be able to understand what you're doing. You won't be able to understand if it's you or if it's the Spirit anyway. So listen, you pray in tongues like you do everything else in the kingdom of God. You pray in tongues by faith. Now, some of you never been taught this this way and it's okay. That's why I'm here now. um, You know, the, the problem with this is, you know, I'm praying and then I, if I start to pray in tongues, I think I'm making up the words. Stop, stop for a second. Stop for just a second. You are telling me you got faith enough to believe a God you've never seen manifested in flesh form died on a cross for your sins was buried in a tomb for three days on the third day. He came out ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father in a heaven you've never seen and don't know the location to and you have the faith to believe that. You have the faith to believe if you get money in your hand and you sow a seed into the kingdom of God, that God will take that money and return a supernatural harvest to you in the form of blessing and miracles. And you don't have no problem with that. You don't have no problem believing that. Well, speaking in tongues, you've got to use the same faith. (laughs) Father, I thank you for everything you've done for me. Was that, was that you or was that me? Was that you or was that me? No, no. The faith in what the word says. I will be in you. Rivers of living water. When I pray in the spirit, my understanding is unfruitful. So you take your mind out of that equation. Okay. Now, most of the time, Paul does not encourage us to take our mind out of the equation, because he says, with the mind, we serve the Lord. But in this one area, he wants you to understand, no matter what you think, while you're doing this, it's unfruitful, okay? So just leave your mind out of it, and pray in the spirit, in tongues, all right? Uh, let me give you, go to 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen. the next verse from the last one we were just at. I'm almost done. Paul said, what's the conclusion then? Okay, if my understanding's unfruitful, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm saying. If my understanding's unfruitful, th- then what's the conclusion? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Now listen, those of you struggling to speak in tongues, okay, try singing in tongues first. Okay. It's a, I don't know if you know how powerful what I just said was. But it's a lot easier to tap into deep feeling, deep emotions, deep resonant things on the inside when you're humming a tune. Okay? So you can hum a tune. Ooh. 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 And then, then you're kind of feeling it. Okay? So it's a lot easier for some people th- than to start just in a dry room, you know, you say your prayer and, and your understanding in your English and then you, you know, you try to speak in tongues. Try singing in tongues first. Okay? To get into the flow of it. Okay, just do it by faith, do it by faith. Some people have a problem with the concept of approaching tongues like that by faith. So let me give you some theological backing and I'll let you go for today. Luke chapter 11, verse nine. Now, we use this scripture, (laughs) we have destroyed this scripture, okay? We make this scripture mean that if you want a BMW, ask God. If you want an eight-bedroom house, ask God. Okay? If you, want to, if you want anything, just ask, seek, and knock, and you know, if, if you being evil know how to give your children good gifts, then how much more will your father? You know, whatever you want. Listen to the scripture. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Everybody say, What's it? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Everybody say, What's it? "What's it?" For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Everybody say, What's it? "What's it?" If a son asks for bread from any father among you, would you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give? What's the it? The Holy Spirit. So if you want to speak in tongues and let that river flow, it's as simple as father. I ask you, fill me fresh again with the Holy Spirit and allow me to speak in tongues and then do it by faith. Amen. So fourth definition, what is the highway of holiness? It's a place by the riverside. It's a place where the river is supposed to flow. Christians, stand with me. The river is supposed to flow in your life. The river is supposed to flow in your house. And I came today to edify you, to build you up, because this is something you're not doing as often as you should. And I want to tell you Paul said, I'll pray in the Spirit, I'll pray in my understanding. As often as you pray in your understanding, you should pray in the Spirit. Okay, if you pray 10 minutes in your understanding every morning, pray 10 minutes in the Spirit. When you pray in the Holy Ghost, when you pray in your prayer language connecting to God, there's a sensitivity and an awareness that comes over you that the Holy Spirit is with you and within you that you just don't have any other time. And this is something that you grow in. This is something, the more you do it, it's like anything, you grow in it. Sometimes you can just be praying in the Holy Spirit and then you'll get a a deep impression. You'll get a deep instruction, something I feel I'm supposed to do. And Paul calls that being led by the Spirit. And a lot of people are trying to get through life with Jesus but damming up the Holy Spirit and not letting the river flow. That is not God's plan for your life. Jesus came to bring a river to flow on the inside of you. And I want to tell you to let the river flow in your life. Now, you don't realize it, but the word of God today answered whatever you walked in here dealing with I don't care where the issue is that answered it and I promise you if you follow the instruction and just do what was said you will walk in victory and your life will have a flow to it your life will have that beautiful thirst quenching river of living water that will water you and even water people around you, bless you, bless people around you. But you need to let the river flow. Hands lifted up all over the house. Father, thank you for your word. God, I ask you to bless your people today. I ask that the word of God preached will quicken, come alive in their hearts and their souls this week as they go through their life. I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon them to pray in the spirit by faith to pray in other tongues and believe you for it and believe you in the middle of it God I pray you would invade them with your presence even as they're driving home today and even as they wake up tomorrow that your presence would be there with them that they would sense you and Lord let their lives be full of that rushing mighty river in Jesus name we pray amen give God a great shout of praise all over the house